0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.
3: Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Deborah Goodrich Royce is the author of Reef Road, a novel, and she has been on this podcast before. I'm delighted to welcome her back. Her literary thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Finding Mrs. Ford and Ruby Falls are joined now by Reef Road. Deborah began her career as an actress and went on to star and feature films like Just One of the Guys, which I used to watch in the 80s all the time, so this is like a crazy full-circle situation. She lived in Paris and was a reader for Le Studio Canal Plus in the 1990s and was the story editor at Miramax Films in New York. She won a grant from the Massachusetts Arts Council in 2002 with her writing partner Mitch Giannuzio to screenplay their workshop, to develop and workshop their screenplay, Susan Taft Has Run Amok. With her husband, noted small cap investor Chuck Royce, Deborah restored the 1939 Avon Theater in Stanford, Connecticut. Deborah and Chuck have restored several hotels, including the Ocean House, where they had me for an event last summer, which was so much fun, and you all have to go to the Ocean House, Deer Mountain Inn, Wicca Inn, and the Margin Street Inn. Also a bookstore, the Savoy in Westerly, Rhode Island, and numerous other Main Street buildings in Westerly, Rhode Island and Tannerville, Tannersville, New York. Deborah serves on the governing boards of the New York Botanical Garden, the Greenwich Historical Society, and the Prasad Project, and the advisory boards of the American Film Institute, the Greenwich International Film Festival, the Preservation Society of Newport County, and the Preservation Foundation of Palm Beach. She is a former trustee of the YWCA of Greenwich and the Garden Conservancy.
4: Hello, everyone. Thank you, Zibby, for coming. So, Zibby, I I really want to add my Kudos, just to <laughs> first of all having a Z name. This is my darling daughter Alexandra, who when she was two called herself Zaza. So we have a we have a Z and we have a Zibby, and I just love the zip of the Z name. So yeah, I'm the writer of this book, this incredible visual. Don't you love that? Yes. We can talk about how you put a spider on a book cover. And Becky Ford is the artist who helped me do that. Uh, you, you can never make a spider too hairy or gross. So we ended up with sort of a silhouette. So I'm an actress turned author. This is my third book. We'll, we'll touch on things along the way.
3: Okay, how many of you have read Deborah's book already? So good, right? Okay, so that's about half. So for the people who haven't read your book, and also this is going to be, if everything records properly, a podcast episode on moms don't have time to read books. So I'll get I'll cover all the bases for people listening to that too. So Deborah, tell us about Reef Road. What is it about? So And we're going to get a little dark.
4: On December the 10th, 1948, my mother's best friend was murdered. She was 12 years old, as was my mother. This happened in Pittsburgh in a very working class section called Homewood-Brushton. It was a Friday night. It was December. The girls had been to the practice for their Christmas pageant at their church, and my mother thought she would go over to her friend's house that night, and it turned out for whatever reason, my grandmother said no. The parents of the real girl went bowling. They left her home. They were adamant that they locked the front door, that they locked the back door. And when they returned at 11.30 that night, the back door was ajar and there was a window and the shade had been raised. There was a, a very unsettling 21-minute lag from the moment the parents... Came home, heard by the neighbors at 11.30, and 21 minutes later when two things happened, the father called the police and the mother ran outside of the house screaming. So we can talk about that 21 minutes if you want to. So I had always known that this had happened. I'd always known it was an unsolved crime. And I had always known that it had created a lot of discomfort and anxiety for my mother my mom is still alive, and she's fine. but So it had been in my consciousness. I don't think I knew it as a very young child. I'm certain my mother wouldn't have told me when I was little. But at a certain point, it was in my sphere of awareness. So the pandemic locked us down in March of 2020. I know exactly where I was. It was my granddaughter Annabelle's first birthday. And we were all in Florida on Friday, March 13th. And there was that weird moment, remember, we're like, is this like, are we going on is this happening two weeks we're going to do this for two weeks and so there we all were in florida i i had been on a book tour so i wasn't able to travel so i thought this is the moment when i'm actually going to finally research this real piece of not really our family history but kind of this next door history. So, lo and behold, there was a vast amount of material available on the internet, every single newspaper article, and there were a lot covering this crime. It was all there. I was able to reach the University of Pittsburgh and get the coroner's report. I spoke to the Pittsburgh Police Department. They would not release the police report, but I happen to know some things about that, which we can get to. So as I did this research and as I took my notes, I thought, I don't want to write this as non-fiction. I don't want to say what I think happened about this real family. Most suspicion has always fallen on the brother, a significantly older brother. For a 12-year-old girl, he was seven years older, and those years are meaningful years from 12 to 19. There all of these questions and answers and testimony and statements and retractions about where the brother was that night. He was supposed to be at work at the railroad yard. And was he there? Was he not there? Did they see him? Did they not? So as I was going through this, I thought I'm going to write a piece of fiction that as a theme really deals with both generational trauma and tangential trauma but I'm going to make it a thriller, which I like to do with a twist in it. So Reef Road is a dual narrative of two women, a writer who lives alone with her aging dog in a dreary apartment behind the Publix uh, grocery store in Palm Beach and a younger woman named Linda Alonso who lives on Reef Road. And she has a very handsome husband from Argentina and two beautiful little children. And about three weeks into the pandemic lockdown, they disappear. And the police reveal security camera footage of them in their face masks, getting on a plane bound for Buenos Aires at Miami International Airport, and she can't follow. So the book toggles back and forth between the stories of these two women. You start to figure out what one has to do with the other, and it is set in this very claustrophobic hothouse setting of the pandemic lockdown of 2020.
3: Wow. So Deborah, it's one thing to research everything that happened in the house next door and go in through that deep dive, but it's another to then use that and take it into, make it into such a beautiful novel and figure out who these two women are and all that. So how did you jump from the actual things that happened into these two characters and why divide it like that? Why the two viewpoints?
4: I love a dual narrative. I, I like dual timelines and I like dual points of view. I like that peeling of the onion. I like to call my books identity thrillers. That's not really a genre, but I think it applies to a certain type of thriller that is really focusing on puzzles and the secrets that people keep as as you bit by bit start to peel the onion and realize what's going on. I like to write a twist, which, you know, the difference between a reveal and a twist, In a reveal, we're in a locked room, one of us gets murdered, one of us is the murderer and at a certain point, it's revealed who it is. In a twist, you come to the point where you realize, I didn't even know that was what was going on at all. So the two points of view. So with the writer, it's first person, her sections are written like journal entries, she's quite obsessive, she's quite ruminative, And there is certainly a side of myself that I got to indulge. She's fascinated with arcane murder statistics, so I got to go down all these weird rabbit holes about murder, who gets murdered, murders of women, famous murders. But with her, I really wanted to look at that sort of secondhand trauma and what it is. I've read a book recently called It Didn't Start With You. It's a nonfiction book about epigenetics. And it has blown my mind that at some genetic level, we take on trauma. And it begins with a study of mice. And these mice who are exposed to a particular smell and then given electric shocks, Two generations later, their grandchildren, when exposed to that smell, have reactions of stress and anxiety. They've done a lot of work with children of Holocaust victims. I mean, children who were not there, who didn't experience it. It's a very real thing. So that's what I'm exploring with the writer. With the wife, Linda Alonso, well, I I think I had very recently re-watched uh, Body Heat. Have you ever seen that <laughs> film with William Hurt and Kathleen Turner? I think it was made in the 80s or 90s. It is a steamy film noir. Kathleen Turner is at the peak of her sultriness and it is set in Lantana, Florida and it's hot and they're sweaty, and they're bad. Everyone's bad, but particularly the woman is bad. And so in noir, you really have to pay attention to the woman. You really should look twice at what she's really doing. So I wanted that, that noir plotline to play out
3: with the wife, and then I wanted to wind it all together and unravel it. I work with a lot of like 20-somethings and there are a couple of us who are older on my team and one of us referenced Kathleen Turner and like nobody knew who we meant. (laughs) It was so depressing but anyway glad that we all know what we're talking about here. Part of the book really deals with fear of something happening to children, something happening to people you love and of course writing this in the context of the pandemic perhaps that's what it was tapping into. Did you, while you were writing it, need some sort of vehicle for all the uncertainty in the world, and do you feel like you maybe just shoved that into these characters, or was this more of an analytical experiment? No, it wasn't analytical at all. I think we were
4: living in a state of fear. I mean, raise your hand if you Cloroxed your bananas. We were like... (laughs) I have to digress because I love Mm -hmm. the digressions. I keep pointing at my beautiful daughter. We're all in this house together, parents, kids, grandkids, lots of dogs. We had like dog hair tumbleweeds rolling around the house. I'm trying to write. Alexander's trying to raise a child. So I had a romance with my Roomba. I got a Roomba. (laughs) It It was the only thing that kept us from killing each other because we could set, and I named him Orlando after a character in another book. But we could put Mr. Orlando to work to clean the house while we were doing our things. But there was terrible anxiety. And I was writing it really day and date with what was going on. And for those of you writers out there, I mean, there's a great piece of wisdom. If you just write down what's going on every day, you're writing history. So I look back at it, and the book isn't about the pandemic, but the pandemic is a fantastic setting for a thriller. It serves to impose the kind of constraints on your characters that wartime would. You know, they're boxed in when the younger woman's husband gets on the plane and she can't follow him because the borders are closed. That is an obstacle, which is very convenient. And Alice McDermott in her book, What About the Baby? So you're writing, that's a wonderful book for writers. Annabelle, have you read that? Wendy, have you read that? It's a very good book. So in What About the Baby, she talks about in nonfiction, the work for the writer is to include everything. You have to get it all in there. In fiction, you have to decide what you're writing, what you're telling. It's absolutely limitless. For example, the real murder victim, whose name was Carol, she had two brothers. And a friend who read an early draft said, what's with a second brother? And so it was confusing. And in fiction, it's very easy to sort of exit stage left, brother number two. In nonfiction, you can't do that. So I did feel this, this permeating feeling of anxiety that we were all living in. And I thought, I
3: just didn't see any point to avoid it. I thought it was actually helpful. Speaking of brothers, talk about why you decided to have the brother come in as this new character and how you ended up writing what came next. Well...
4: I'm probably not going to talk about that so much, but there is a, a very strong storyline that has to do with Argentina, that I had the opportunity to travel to Argentina about a decade ago with one of my best friends, who is half Argentine, and one of the things that just left me shocked and completely riveted, and I never got over it, right in the middle of Buenos Aires is this large military facility that turns out was the, the detention center in the late 70s and early 80s when the government was rounding up students and leftists and union leaders and they would hood these people and drive them what they thought were very far distances but they were imprisoning them right in the middle of Buenos Aires. And again, that's a perfect, uh, the juxtaposition is just so awful. And I I really never forgot that. So that whole storyline of those people, they were called the disappeared, makes its way through Miguel's storyline into this book and it is an important thread that, yeah. Yeah,
3: we'll, we'll stop there sorry (laughs) okay so when you go about writing a book like this and your other books when you sit down to start it what comes first like how do you approach the whole project and do you outline the whole story ahead of time do you know what goes on or not like what is your process like
4: That's a great question. So the term I've always heard is, are you a plotter or a pantser? Do you plot it all out or fly by the seat of your pants? But then I was doing a radio show last week and the host said, do you write with a compass or a map? And I'm not going to forget that. So I write with a compass. I kind of know where I want to go. So it's not fully by the seat of my pants. I think it's a more precise expression. Make a note of that, Wendy. (laughs) Right, don't don't you think? It's, It's a little more precise. So I have a compass. I know certain points I want to have happen, but I don't have a map. I take copious notes, and my notes take the form of what if. What if this happens, let's say, something's going on in this room and somebody gets murdered. So, you know, well what if somebody walked out of the bathroom at this moment? Or what if that person did this? And at a certain point when I have enough notes I'll start writing, but when I start writing it might change the direction of the notes. And then I do go back and tweak the notes. I also do timelines. Because my bo- books are so nonlinear, timelines are really useful. So, I write them out, but then I do this weird kind of antiquated thing. Do you remember like month at a page calendars? Mm -hmm. I print them out. And I I print them out because they're correct. If you're looking at October of 1975 or June of 2010, you know, the days fall on... um, Different. The number, date, falls on different days of the week. And I start making notes on those, and it is very visually helpful for me to see. Uh, My first book, there's an object. There's a necklace on the cover, and the object is a very important plot point, and there's a point after which you cannot see that necklace again. But you can get confused as a writer if you're jumping all around. So I just make a note, you know, July the 5th ixnay, I'm in a class, you just can't see it again. So I go back to that. So those are some of the little techniques I use.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
1: From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com.
2: Moonpig.com This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all.
3: So talk a little bit about becoming a writer at this point in your life. Yes,
4: because I, <laughs> I have led a very long life. So I started as an actress. After I went to college, I was a French and Italian major, studied a little bit in France, came home. I was cast in a movie in my college town of Cleveland, and it was a big film with Frank Langella and Tom Hulse, and I was a background dancer. And in The twists of Fate, this got me to New York. I came to the city to audition for the choreographer who was probably, you know, not quite who he said he was when he was kept inviting me, you know, come to New York, audition for me. And I took it very literally. So I came to New York, I auditioned for him, I wasn't cast. And I ended up, deciding to try acting. And I had a nice run as an actress, about 10 years. I started with a very big role on a soap opera called All My Children that was around for 40 years. So I was on in the early 80s as the sister of the star. Susan Lucci played this character, Erica Kane, and she had this, again, bad, bad, bad sister (laughs) named Silver, very realistic name, Silver Kane. And I played that, and when I was written out, Paramount Pictures flew me to L.A. to do this project with Christopher Lloyd. So I had a 10-year run as an actress in film and television. It was great fun. It was very interesting. I recently did CNN because of the true crime component of this book, and they asked for clips from this uh, mini series I did with Mark Harmon. I played the woman who married Ted Bundy and very cute Mark Harmon played Bundy. So uh, I spent three hours looking, so I don't know if anybody knows how to do this better, but trying to find this very old mini series, what I came up with on YouTube was like Marcy's movies. So somebody <laughs> named Marcy had f- like, I don't know, not even by modern technology, she had taped this at home. So I spent the whole evening looking for these clips which I dutifully got to CNN at 1 in the morning, which they then didn't use. <laughs> but I was glad to see this Mark Harmon thing again because it was actually good. It, it held up. So I worked for 10 years as an actress and then my first husband, who, who had grown up in Paris, had the opportunity to go there. So in the early 90s we moved to Paris Alexandra was a little child. She went to her grandmother's Montessori preschool in Paris, and she had a younger sister, and so we all lived there. And it was the first step in what would lead to my writing career. I was hired by a French film studio as a reader, and this is a basic job that all studios, they keep freelance people who read manuscripts, synopsized manuscripts for the studio heads and write a page of comments. So I did that and now we're in 92 and 93 living in Paris and then we moved back to the States. Uh, my first husband was hired by Julia Roberts to run her development company and I was hired at uh, Miramax to be the story editor which is like a book editor. So I did that in the 90s and through these twists and turns. So Miramax, in a lot of ways, for me, was like my writing school. I, in in being in that editorial chair and working with very, very fine writers for that period of years, I really had to figure out what I thought about story and structure and character and everything. So when I left that job, just because it was very taxing as a mother, and we can talk about doing it all or doing it more sequentially, doing it all, doing it sequentially, I ended up going through divorce, getting remarried, moving to Connecticut, and writing all along. There's some of my writing group friends here. And one of the things I found very important was being part of a writing group. I found it a very nurturing environment and I would strongly advise writers only do that with kind people. You should never do that with unkind people. But in being in a writing group setting I started to get a feel for my voice. Not that I was modifying my voice for my fellow writers but I started to notice what they recognized about the way I write. So It was a clarifier for me. And the the real turning point came at this magic moment when I was an empty nester. So really in my mid-50s, which was eight years ago, I thought I will get serious. I had this book in mind. I started telling my friends I was writing a book, and my husband, who's very, makes, you know, modesty a practice, he's like, oh my God, I really wouldn't tell people that. And I said, you know... (laughs) I, I can handle it if if I don't actually write the book, I, I will be able to say to my friends, I mean, I wasn't putting it in the newspaper, I would be able to say to my friends if they said, you know, so whatever happened to that book, nothing. So that that was a moment where I really committed myself. And then now I have my third book coming out.
3: And what are your skincare techniques? <laughs> <laughs>
4: So I do a variety of things. I do see a dermatologist, and I've done fillers and laser and all Botox and all that stuff. I'm older now, so I've done a little more lately. Uh, I am in my mid-sixties, and oh, I like skin SkinCeuticals, all their products, like their B5 gel and that TNS serum and all that stuff. So. I I feel like, so that is a weird thing. Like, how much attention do you put into how you look and how much attention do you put into what you're really doing? Obviously, it's what you're doing, which is more important than how you look. But as women, we do have that additional thing sitting on our shoulder about aging, about weight, about skin, about, you know, it's, it's all that. We all have it.
3: I think, I mean, you look amazing. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, I want to start doing. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to belittle all of the success of the book, but, I, you know, this is all fun to know. When you think about projects that you still want to do, what, what little stories or germ, germs of ideas do you have, and what do you want to do next?
4: I got an email last year from a man, and he, he began with, hey, remember me? And I'm thinking, hmm, not yet. And he said, I was your best boy on survival game, which is a provocative sentence, and a a best boy in the movie business is the head electrician. So I knew what he meant. Survival Game was a movie I did with the son of Chuck Norris. Do you young people remember Chuck Norris? He was a famous martial artist movie star in the 80s. So I did a movie with his son. So, so far, okay, I, I did that movie, and he said, do you remember that Thanksgiving dinner we had together? I'm I'm thinking. He said, you were the only actress who didn't have anybody come see her for the holiday. And I thought, well, gosh, poor me. Why did I have nobody come see me? And I don't remember. And then he said, do you remember when we saw each other at the Cannes Film Festival? And now I'm really getting a little nervous. He said... I was in the British pavilion, and you were standing outside, and you were holding a baby. (laughs) And he said, I looked over, and I wondered for a minute if the baby was mine. But I knew it couldn't be possible. And I'm thinking, so I really hope it wasn't possible, because we did not have that nature of a relationship, because I have zero memories, like not a shred. So I thought, okay, so (laughs) what if if you have a woman who has a flawed memory, holes in her memory? Why does she have them? What if this guy comes along? What if he's telling the truth? What if he's not? What if there's something else going on? So right now I'm calling it best boy. (laughs) Someone asked me last week, are you going to tell that guy you're writing this book? I said, you know, I don't know. He's a writer, too. The guy is real. The real guy is real. But in the book, I don't know, it might might be something different. So I'm working on that.
3: Looking like a DNA test is in the future. (laughs) 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 Anyway, um, I know you've given advice on doing a writing group and the way that you do with the calendars is brilliant. Do you have any advice for someone just starting out? I guess this lady over here, somebody who's trying to be a writer. What else would you say at the very beginning?
4: I would say pay attention to your time. Block out your time in ways that you can really change the way you organize your time. I mean don't say I'm going to write from nine to five every day if you can't really write from nine to five every day. We've got Avery over here who has a book coming out and she's a young mom. I don't know how she does it but she can tell that story. So What I did really starting is I used my trusty devices and I blocked out windows of time. For me, three hours is the minimum. It's hard for me to get my head really into something in under three hours. People in my writing group would sometimes do 10 minutes a day challenges and stuff. I need at least three hours, and I can go about six. So I would block it out on my calendar, and just really because I'm very obedient, I, was a, I would obey my phone. And the other thing I would do is go into a different part of my house. I, I have a home office that's off my kitchen, but the kitchen is noisy and trafficked and busy and I have this beautiful conservatory on the other end of the house where we used to have lovely dinners before I took it over. It's it's a beautiful room, it looks out on a river. I write way down there. I have this giant round table. I like paper. I like to do all my research on the computer and often I'll print it out and spread it out. There's something visually for me and people use all kinds of computer organizational techniques for their research. I just respond to seeing it there. My eye will latch onto something and remember something that I don't know I'm looking for. I think that's something about paper that's very helpful. Because I write in a glass room, I don't have the walls that some authors have to stick things on, so I use those metal mesh trolleys that you can use to organize your garage or your pantry, and I just spread papers out there and... On the table. So I, I'm a paper spreader.
3: And are there any books that you've read lately that you're obsessed with or that everybody should read, or just authors who you've always long admired?
4: So I've been on a Joyce Carol Oates binge lately. I came late to the table with Joyce Carol Oates. And maybe it's a generational thing. She's enough older than I am that I wasn't really keyed into her when I was younger. And her writing is so supremely gorgeous. And she switches genres in a way that I like. I don't like to be Bound by one thing or another, I've been. I just read *Charming Billy* by Alice McDermott, which is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my life, and I was late to the table with that. So I'm always reading, like you. But um, those are a
3: couple that really stand out strongly for me now. Well, I have to say. Debra, I have so much respect for you, not just in your ability to write beautifully, speak beautifully, how you help so many other authors with your series at the Ocean House every summer, and all the way you support all these other people. It's really amazing and all the good you do with the restorations and I don't you're just such a multifaceted, really interesting, awesome woman. So thank you for inviting me here. And I hope everybody here has bought a copy from Diane's bookshop, bookstore over there of Reef Road and give it as gifts and everything else. And I just want to say congratulations. Thank you, Zibi. It's always, always a joy to see you. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.